Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. My guest today is Paul Terenza. He has is a writer for BBC. And he's written for a show like Top Gear, you may have heard of it, uh, Miranda and Bubble. He is, has also written a book called Hark, uh, The Chris, Origin of Christmas. I forgive me if I got that title wrong. That's about right. But, <laughs> but what, what got you into Christmas and what, what made you decide to write this book in the first place? Well, I've always uh, been, I think, yeah, quite fascinated by why we do certain cultural things, I suppose. And Christmas was always one of those where certainly here I speak to you now from just near London in England. And there are lots and lots and lots of things to do with Christmas, it seems. And some of them seem quite global and some of them seem quite, um, uh, you know, uh, just the things we do here in, in England or in the whole of Britain or indeed just locally where we are. And I, I, I suppose I was puzzling out why is it that we have all of these peculiar things, everything from Charles Dickens and bells and Christmas trees and carols. There are so many things to do with Christmas. I thought there must be a reason that we do all the things we do. And so I started uh, pulling on that thread, you could say, and unraveling it all. And and yeah, I wanted to read a book about it and I couldn't find a book. So I thought I better write a book about it right. if I can't find one to read. And I remember I, I lived in London last year and I went to Winter Wonderland coming from Little Norway. That's It was so huge. It was enormous for me. Like when I had these roller coasters, these stands, it was enormous. And it yeah, is. Yeah, I, I live. I don't quite live in London, but it's it's it's. Whenever I go, I still I I find it a big big and imposing. Certainly, yeah. Right, and I just think we should basically start at once. And uh, where would you state the origin of Christmas, like the first Christmas traditions, etc.? Well, I mean, it's it's a, that's a difficult question of its own, really, because the obvious answer people would say Christmas starts with Christ being born, but then of course you go, well, actually, thousands of years before that, there were midwinter festivals being celebrated uh the celebration of yule and and the many associations to do with that it just seems there's been something really uh core to the part of humanity that says that when when we're going through tough times like you could argue you know globally this year we want to um be a community together and uh, for the midwinter festivals that meant sharing some food and uh, gathering together and really doing all the things we're not meant to be doing this year, apparently, right. you know, meet, meeting up and sharing food yeah. and things like that. But that does seem to be that, yeah, it goes back to Yule thousands of years ago. And of course, in the prologue of the book, you mentioned Yule Brinner. And what's Yule Brinner or Yule Burner, well, as we call it in the book? 
Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I was doing a little uh, look at the Yule log, I suppose, really, and just looking at how Yule logs, this idea that you would burn this throughout the entire season. You know, often nowadays I think of Christmas and light and flames and candles and log fires. But, uh, but yeah, the, this lovely idea, the ancient idea, one of the earliest rituals really uh, to do with any of this season was this idea that you would have this giant Yule log that would burn the entire season long. And it really got to something at the very heart of those midwinter celebrations, I think, that it was about man uh, triumphing over nature and saying, just because it's freezing cold outside and just because it's the coldest, darkest time of the year, we still can light this fire continually throughout the season. And then the idea that at the end of the season, the, the embers left from that Yule log would then be used to start next year's Yule log. It just showed that sort of continuity of the festival and that, yeah, this would be something that we keep coming back to. And um, what were some of the Yuletide customs back then? Well, you get things that you sort of largely do a little bit of today, a lot of dressing up, a lot of partying, a lot of celebrations, a lot of drinking involved, a lot of sharing of food, that sort of things. So you go way back and you get things like, you know, the actual sort of sacrificing of livestock and drinking um, to toast to old Norse gods and things like that. Um, but yeah, a lot of dressing up as well, including dressing up as like old man winter which really you can see in the descendants of that and do even to, to Santa Claus, you know, that sort of thing today. But this idea of um, dressing up in animal skins and, um, and cross-dressing, that sort of thing, big, just fun time clearly was being had. Right, and you also mentioned Yurgot. So what, what is Yurgot exactly? Well, I think there's this idea that um, you could actually uh, not only be in this dressing up process, you know, it's quite this cultural religious thing of, of uh, a sacrificial uh, animal really. And this idea that this you dress up as the Yule goat and that this is something you could put the burdens of the year on in a way, I think. And that, yeah, a little plays would be acted out. And for many hundreds of years after that, um, in fact, even to this day, throughout little tiny corners of England, you'll find certain villages and pubs where they would act out a very similar uh, ceremony where someone dresses up as an animal and, uh, you know, nowadays, thankfully, it's more of a, uh, a ritual they go through rather than anyone actually being sacrificed. But this idea that you could put the burdens of the year onto one animal uh, was, was part of that dressing up process. We do actually have something similar where we go door to door this, during Christmas and after Christmas. And we do some carols as well like here in Norway. And we get either alcohol or candy for the younger kids. <laughs> Very Today. nice. So it's, it's kind of there you are. moved on. Yeah, the tradition it is carries on. Yeah. And uh, yeah, you talk about midwinter special. So what is a midwinter special? Well, I think just midwinter generally has has been uh, you know a special time of the year and there is been always that you know key towards what is the what is that midwinter day and you know that's generally speaking the 21st of December the uh, the winter equinox and a lot of religious festivals ended up around there certainly Christmas being Certainly the biggest nowadays, but the, the Roman times, they would have their big festivals uh, around there as well. Um, Saturnalia, things like that. So, yeah, this idea of the, the special come back time to of eventually. Year. Yeah, of course. Yeah. And uh, of course, that brings us to Jesus. And we, today we're considering being born 24th or 25th December. But mm. was he really born that day? Why do we consider him to be born 24th December when evidence show on the contrary that he wasn't? Mm. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's the likelihood is 
that it wouldn't have been then. It seems to be a, a, a almost it seems a random date plucked out of the air. Although, of course, when you look into it, those late uh, December uh, festivals that the Roman world would be celebrating, like as I said, Saturnalia, which would have been a few days before then, um, it was a very popular time of the year, and that's partly because like Yule, you want in the darkest and coldest of months to be actually um, gathering and having a big party, but also because at that time of year, uh, farmers and the soldiers weren't as active. You wouldn't be going and declaring war so much in the coldest times of the year. You wouldn't be uh, farming so much. So uh, politics would often close as well. So in the Roman world, end of December is a bit of downtime, and that's when the uh, religious festivals would would come in. So there was a very big uh, midwinter festival, the uh, the Dies uh, Natus, uh, I can't remember the Roman, but it's it's the, the the festival of the unconquered sun. So it's the birthday of this sun, S-U-N, as in the sun in the sky. And when Christianity came in as the official Roman religion, after being persecuted by uh, Rome for some time, it sort of took its place on December the 25th, even though you know, while shepherds watch their flocks, the likelihood is that if there are lambs involved of, of the Christmas story, that says spring, really. So I think a spring birth is is much more likely. Right, which brings us to the virgin birth. And this wasn't really accepted as early on. So tell me a little bit about the virgin birth and why this myth wasn't really accepted in the beginning. Yeah, it's, um, it's one of those things that is, you know, a, a Christians across the world, whether or not you... Uh, how much you believe in everything of that is biblical there. This is one of those things that it is a miracle that is part of the very nature of who Jesus was meant to be. And if God comes to earth as Jesus, or indeed sends his son as Jesus, then part of that involves this miraculous birth, the virgin birth, you know. So it's there, it's biblical, um, but there is uh, arguably, there were so a few dissenting voices saying that in the Hebrew word for virgin, uh, Alma could translate as as young woman, but there's a, a prophecy in the Old Testament about a virgin birth, so it does fulfil that prophecy. So uh, yeah, those early the early church when they were still establishing, you know, the core uh, elements of belief, uh, that was one of those things that was certainly discussed a lot. And then over the years, Catholicism really focusing in on Mary and seeing her as a very key figure, of course, as we still find today. Right. And what you mentioned the four nativities. So what what is the four nativities exactly? Well, I've sort of put it as four nativities and actually two nativities because we think of uh, the nativity uh, and indeed my kids now do nativity plays at school. But originally there were two nativity plays. There was one with shepherds in it and one with with wise men. So in the book that I've written, Hark the Biography of Christmas, it's, uh, I said, well, there's four gospels. So what would those four uh, nativities look like if you base each one on a gospel? But of course, you know, Matthew's gospel has the wise men. Luke's gospel has the shepherds. Mark's gospel doesn't have a nativity story. So he starts with Jesus' baptism. So if you stage that as a nativity play, it's just a lot of people getting very wet. And, but do you feel uh, like these two yeah. gospels contradict each other? Like the one has sheep and one has wise men. Do you feel that way or do you... Well, I think they, there's an argument that they they don't they because they don't all necessarily have the same information. Which one do you therefore uh, go with? I don't think any of them directly contradict each other, um, and arguably the key information is clearly what matters, and so that's about Jesus, Mary, uh, Joseph, miraculous birth, 
and a humble birth as well. I think that's quite important because certainly when Christianity was starting out, one of its great appeals really was that it actually spoke to uh, to the poor in a way that other religions may not have done. So the fact that this was centered around a very humble, poor birth um, is, I think, quite, quite important there. And the fact that the guests then, when they come in, the shepherds on one side, the wise men coming in a couple of years later, um, that they are in different gospels, I don't think matters quite so much as clearly what's the important message they're trying to get across that's the center of the religion, you know. It seems to me that most people accepted the three wise men as uh, the canon, if you will, mm. of, the, of the Bible. And which brings us, you mentioned that there may not even be three wise men, but in fact two or several, just three mm. were, were strict. So tell me a little bit about your theory, the theory there. Yeah. Well, yeah, we think of, of the three wise men. In fact, you know, uh, the church we got here locally to me, I know as people dress up as the three kings. So nowhere in the Bible does it say kings. It says magi, you know, which we think of as wise men or maybe astrologers. Um, but it doesn't say there are three of them. It says that there were magi, wise men potentially, um, and they had three gifts. And so we we associate that for with one carrying one gift each equals three wise men we know there's plural it says magi which is plural of majus um so that means two or more one of those people could have been carrying two gifts there could have been 20 wise men with lots of people empty-handed so we assume three wise men i think it's probably likely if they were wise men there would have been um you know th the implication is is one gift each three wise men fair enough but it doesn't technically say so do you think that they followed the star or do you think that they were there was something more there or it, who can say i mean you know there there is there is actually in terms of the evidence for what happened back then that's the sort of outside of the bible there is evidence that there were was some sort of big star system going on some uh astronomical uh sight to behold around that time you know potentially i think around up to about 4 bc i think it is so that's one of the actual aspects of the nativity story that potentially there is some sort of uh, evidence for so if, if anything maybe the star is something that maybe did happen right which brings us to joseph and mary and they go to priests and he gives them a potion so tell me a little bit about the potion that the priest gives and why they go to the priests at all well yeah this is one of those stories you don't find uh in the bible there were before the bible was being formed you know it took a few hundred years before we ended up with the books we currently have in bibles today uh, there were all sorts of, of stories being told and some written down and some just spoken and handed down uh, uh, by just being spoken out loud. And one of those was, yeah, about that actually when Mary becomes pregnant, there's a priest and he gives Mary and Joseph um, this potion that reveals lies, like a truth truth serum, you know, um, just to prove that she is speaking the truth when she says that she is a virgin. So there's various little stories like that, but the early church were deciding which ones it felt like there was actually some sort of um, more evidence for, more validity to, just uh, the ones that should be included in the Bible. That one did not make the cut. Uh, right. Neither did the one about Jesus' uh, birth, meaning that time stands still for some time as well. That was um, maybe one of the earliest examples of time standing still, you know, that we now see in, in sci-fi films. But the... But it, I may be wrong, but didn't he have brothers as well before he was born? Isn't there mentioned that they well, didn't have yeah, brothers? Yes, yeah, there's James, brother of Jesus, who uh, who who comes after uh, Jesus. And but it was not before. 
I don't know if uh, the before. Well, there's uh, yeah, there's Jesus' brother uh, who was. Yeah, I think he was 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 just after. I think that they just had had uh, um, talk of that. But um, you know, because Joseph, maybe not the father of Jesus, but maybe he was the father of of you know a half brother of Jesus. Put it that way. Right. And uh, which brings us to the Roman holiday, which we already mentioned. Forgive me if I say it wrong. Saturnara. Is that um, Saturn, yeah, Saturnalia, Saturnalia. Okay. yeah. What is it, and um, why did the Romans celebrate it? Well, you know, I, I, as obviously, I'm 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 English, and you're Norwegian, and they were Latin or Roman Italian, so who knows how we're meant to be pronouncing it? I don't know, but oh, uh, it was um, yeah, very very popular celebration, Saturnalia. It was uh, uh, mid mid to late December, sort of seventeenth to the nineteenth, uh, but actually over the years it grew and grew. It's one of those things maybe a bit like Christmas that used to be one day and then became three days and then five days and then a week. And it just became a season of celebration. And it was incredibly popular. One giant kind of uh, very communal party, not just in the home, but out in society, a giant feast. Uh, you go to the temple uh, to worship this god of Saturn, uh, a stone replica, a statue of Saturn would be there at the feast as well. So and then there'll be lots of games and a bit of um, general sort of chaos. You know, someone would be there leading the celebrations, getting all these kind of wacky events going on and silly games, chucking water over people. It was chaos by the sounds of it. So not exactly the child centred um, festivity that maybe Christmas has become in certain parts of the world today. Of course, this wasn't Christmas. This was a religious festival around about a week before when we we'd celebrate Christmas now. But I think really it certainly laid the foundations for having a big religious uh, party and festivity then. Were some tra other traditions in during this festival or? Yeah, I mean, there's all sorts of things, you know, there was there was gift giving, um, there was uh, decorating your house with evergreens, you know, there's certain things that you could see are coming in there that we do have in our Christmases today, you know, this idea of, Again, going back to that Yule thing of uh, nature, uh, evergreens and, you know, conquering nature, making sure things can last and making sure the food can last is is tied up in when they would be de decorating their houses. So all of that stuff. And then gift giving is one of those things that just makes sure that the public like this festival and it makes sure that every year they look forward to it once again, because, uh, yeah, you know, you get to have some gifts and also... A bit of mucking around, a bit of topsy-turvy life as well. You'd have the slaves becoming masters and the masters becoming slaves. So it was a very popular celebration. Right. Um, we're going to jump a little ahead of time now and go to Emperor Constantine and we're going mm. to talk about San, San Nicholas. And okay. he had quite an early legend from, from the birth. So tell me a little bit about his early days, if you will. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, so St. Nicholas uh, and well, St. Nicholas and, and Constantine, the two people you often don't think of together, but actually uh, at the Council of Nicaea, the Emperor Constantine, uh, he set up, because Emperor Constantine is the one who made the Roman world Christian, really. So he established this council so that the, the Eastern and Western Church could try and agree on what um, what the church was meant to believe, really. And St. Nicholas was one of those bishops who was there. So he was... Uh, potentially a very uh, a holy person and and also a wealthy person he inherited a lot of money and had a lot to give away didn't have any descendants or children of his own so he liked this idea of giving the money away to those people who he felt deserved it so he would then listen out for 
local people, including in one case, a, uh, the father of three young daughters. He's a, a widower and he's poor and he needs some money uh, to look after his daughters. And so St. Nicholas lobs one day a bag of gold through the window and it lands in the stocking by the fireplace. Uh, and then according he's to legend. Yeah, according to the legend, you know, I mean, these are all great stories as far as we're, we're all concerned, you know, but you can instantly see the origin story there of a present in a stocking by a fireside by a bearded man called St. Nicholas. So um, the origins come in there. But they kind of wanted to keep this a secret, didn't they? He didn't want, he didn't want his words going around that he was giving away gifts to everyone. Exactly. Yeah, we've got a uh, there's a TV show in this country called The Secret Millionaire, uh, where right. you know yeah, someone who's yeah, done yeah. very very well would go and give some money secretly, privately. Of course, at the end of the show, they go, "Ha ha, it is me." So it's not a secret at the end. But same with St Nicholas, he wanted to do it secretly, and of course, it's no longer a secret. I think we're all pretty familiar now with this guy who had a beard and gave lots of presents out. And tell me about it because it was in. I don't remember if you mentioned it already, but it was invited to the Chancellor Constantine. Yeah, so there was, there was some, some guy who don't can't stand there. So tell me a little bit about this. Oh, yeah. This meeting. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So when they, when they first uh, had this Council of Nicaea that Emperor Constantine uh, set up, um, the church were, was still working stuff out and still working out how it should exist. Uh, it was like the Brexit of its day, you know, it was uh, the uh, the big, big decisions, dilemmas and arguments. And one of them uh, was uh, a sort of uh, a religious belief called Arianism by a, a chap called Arius. And this man Arius went along to this Council of Nicaea and St. Nicholas took against what he was saying. And what he was saying was about the person of Jesus and whether Jesus was equal to God or sort of came after God. And that may seem like a sort of a, a relatively minor theological or philosophical um, difference, but it was enough that St. Nicholas, I thought, I'm not having this, went over and punched uh, Arius on the nose, you know. And the, the legend again is that he was ready to be escorted out of the council hall. Uh, because you can't punch another person at the Council of Nicaea. Um, but the legend is that an image of Mary and Joseph appeared behind St. Nicholas and the other bishops all back down and, and let St. Nicholas stay. But um, yeah, one of those stories, there are lots and lots of stories associated with St. Nicholas. You mentioned Arianism, and it sounds vaguely familiar to what Adolf Hitler later will use as Aryan race. Is that rela relatable at all, is it, or is it just something... No, I think I think that's entirely uh, coincidental. I don't know the the You're origins. So familiar, so it does, yeah. Well, I think a a Arianism, uh, from in the in this religious perspective, is named after Arius, who was just the man who came up with this idea. Um, I don't know the origins of Arianism, as in the Adolf Hitler one. I must look into that. Right, which brings that's us the, to the next book. Yeah, which brings us to the eleventh century and Christmas begins to take shape. Tell me a little bit about shaping of Christmas. Yeah, so by then, at this point, uh, Christmas had come to, it travelled across Europe, generally speaking. It's had a few hundred years of being in the Roman world. And by this point, um, it, Christmas had arrived here in England, where I am now, and it was taking its own shape there because other local cultures and customs already had their ways of doing things. So here in England, for example, we had this 
custom where you'd go into the orchards and every midwinter you would be uh, covering the apple trees with cider and with alcohol and to try and bless the trees so they'd grow again for next year and give you more more crops and things like that and you'd sing songs you'd sing like really like carols really so then when the church arrives in places like that there was a, a genuine um, decree from the pope that said okay rather than try and replace all these customs let's try and work with them a little bit so if people are worshipping trees let's not worship a tree spirit but let's say well, well the christian holy spirit can come in and sort of be replaced that slowly so it was really a very gradual uh, takeover of some of those customs which you still see in christmas today when you have holly and ivy and mistletoe and things like that they're all part of what many would think of as a christian christmas today but back then in the 1100s it was uh, something rather different um forgive me if i say his name wrong but king vaito is that correct um what, wait, what, it, what, does he, what does he have to do with christmas and why is it important to the story yeah well you've got this is uh uh king um uh king vaklav is how i would maybe Vaclav. give it a go but i don't know either because he was uh also known as duke Wenceslas of bohemia and the main thing he has to do with christmas really is there is a christmas carol good king Wenceslas, and that actually is not a christmas song it's actually for the day after it's St. stephen's day which is December the 26th but Good King Wenceslas has always been a very popular Christmas song for over a thousand years now and um, yeah he was a good holy man and a generous ruler and he thought at the Christmas season Good King Wenceslas the original Wenceslas would give out money to the widows and the orphans and uh, just give them a nice bit of charity at, at Christmas really yeah so uh, the song still so it sort of today. carries on the tradition of St. Nicholas in a way well, exactly. Yeah. And the big sort of movement of the um, uh, the charitable side of Christmas nowadays, you often think of linking back to Charles Dickens and a Christmas carol and, and, and you know, maybe 150 years ago or so. But there were one or two people early on who were also yeah, being benevolent. Which brings us to Henry III. And what, what tradition does he keep going? Because he, he seems like to be a kind of Christmas as well. Yeah, so by by this point in in uh, here in England, we would have had several of the early uh, big medieval kings. You got William the First. He had these big Christmas feasts with uh, plates you could eat. You'd actually have the plates made of the plates made of stale bread, so you could eat the food on top of it. And the plates, which would be made of bread, would lap up all the gravy, and then you could just eat the plates, which was fantastic. But these this idea of a big royal it sounds like a medieval movie, like just eating the cartoons and stuff. It does, doesn't it? It's, you know, there's no washing up, so that's quite good. Um, but yeah, Henry III, uh, we're looking about sort of 1240, that sort of thing, 1248. He had a really big Christmas in 1248, uh, filling Westminster Hall with, uh, with people who were local and poor and needed a nice meal. So again, that idea of charity of Christmas and certainly of the people who had the money, the royals passing it on down to people at uh, the bottom end of society. Um, and then just still himself though having a massive massive christmas feast we know that i think at 1251 his feast included i've got it here 70 pigs a thousand cod 500 conger eels 10,000 haddock and it goes on you know nearly 2,000 hens 120 peacocks loads and, and i don't i presume he had guests i'm hoping that wasn't just for him um let's mm -hmm. hope that he invited other people right and uh 
I'm not quite sure about this term we use, mumming. What's that? What's mumming? Yeah. Well, that actually goes back with what you talked about earlier about going door to door and um, and the Yule goat and things like that. That's the sort of equivalent, really, that we would have had of of that is this mummer's play. They used to call it. We don't really have them much nowadays. Most people, certainly in Britain, wouldn't have heard of a mummer's play. But I would also say that most people in Britain would actually be quite near a mummer's play at least once a year, because there are little villages that put on these plays that would tour around the village often going from pub to pub or uh, from house to house maybe and they'd put on the play maybe several times in one evening short play maybe 20 minutes and yeah again someone would be dressing up as an animal there would be a knight there would be someone being killed so to speak and then there'd be a miraculous potion that would bring them back to life there would be some carol singing and they would put around um you know a hat to say could you give us some money please and they would just, you know, put on a little show, really. But it was all really a way of just earning a little bit of money. Right. And what, what century would you say this beginning to take shape, the mumming? Well, the earliest we know of it being a proper sort of um, part of, of society, really, was around the 1300s, the 1200s to the 1300s. If it went on, certainly a version of it would have gone on before then, because, you know, there is, it goes right back to, to ancient Yule, really. But in terms of it becoming really big and popular, I think its heyday was between around 1300 and 1600. Really after 1600, you don't hear of it too much in the main. Uh, but like I said, there are still places today where, where if you really look for it, you can still find a mummer's play. Right. And uh, when, when do you think these Christmas decorations begin to be a thing on Christmas? Yeah, well, you get, uh, I mean, it goes right back to the Romans, of course, with decorating evergreens and things like that. But in terms of different things to the evergreens, you get uh, you get tinsel uh, starts to come in. Uh, that comes from Germany. Uh, and that goes quite a way back, really. That's into the into the Middle Ages. So, yeah, you know, that sort of starts to come in there. Um, the German idea, I think, really is Christmas colours and actually having a bit more um, consideration to it. So in England, we we gained uh, Prince Albert came from Germany to marry our Queen Victoria in the 1840s uh, or before that, actually, I should say. But around about the 1840s, suddenly this very fashionable, popular German prince was bringing this very German idea of reds and greens, for example, to do with Christmas, which, of course, reflects the reds and greens you'd find in nature. And the red is the berry and the green is the holly. Um, but still today, you know, I've got Christmas decorations up here, which are red and green. And that that very um, focused and specific idea of of how that should look comes from there. Um, the German churches used to often have as well. Um, you'd get some plants and leaves and you'd decorate them in shapes and letters so you could spell out things uh, to greet people. But it was very much more um, focused and, and uh, you know, specific than certainly over in England, it was all just like, oh, chuck some things up over there and over there. It was a bit more evergreens and just chaos until I think the Germans made it a little bit more civilized. Right, which brings us to darker chapter for Christmas because it's cancelled. And why? What? What? what why was the reason they wanted to cancel Christmas? Kind of Grinchy, the Grinch, if you will. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So uh, it all go comes back to the Reformation, really, the European Reformation that that looked at what was happening with Catholicism and, and at the time Christmas as well was getting quite a, a big bawdy affair. It was really just an excuse to have a few drinks and 
cause a bit of a uh, bit of trouble in the streets. So by the yeah, 1640s, uh, Christmas was cancelled in England. And then when the Pilgrim Fathers went to America, the Puritans went over there to settle in America in the New World. They again had this idea that we don't celebrate Christmas, which is why Thanksgiving, much bigger thing uh, in terms of the big Christmas, you know, sorry, the big turkey and the big uh, American celebrations. Whereas Christmas would be a, maybe a slightly quieter, more religious thing over there. But it was, uh, yeah, cancelled really in, in England because it was a bit chaotic. And for 15 years, it was illegal to actually celebrate Christmas uh, in England. That's, wouldn't you say that making something illegal would make it more popular? Yeah, very true. And it, in fact, yeah, it, there was a, a big movement throughout that 15 year period of people still secretly celebrating it. But what then happened, of course, what until that point was a very public uh, celebration and people, as I said, would go out and be going around the villages, putting plays on or having big feasts as a community, as a village. And as soon as you ban Christmas, it just drives it into the home. And so now the Christmases we have, which are much more home based than out in out in society, I think really comes from there. You ban Christmas, you send it inside and you make families celebrate it privately themselves instead of out and about together as a, as a community right and we touched, talked about it briefly but let's talk about the first american christmas when they like begin that show you just mentioned thanksgiving must be a more bigger thing there but when does we really do we really begin to see the first christmas in america yeah yeah, it was uh, really, I mean, the very first Christmases that you get over there are really when um, when the first people were landing in America. So, but even then, it wasn't a hugely celebrated thing. The first one we know of is 1604, and that was uh, French explorers who, who celebrated there. And we know Captain John Smith had Christmas dinner uh, with oysters and fish and wildfowl and good bread, he said. Um, but I think the different religious communities in America wanted to celebrate in quite different ways. And so you get in Virginia, Protestants, and in New York as well, they would enjoy their Christmases. Uh, whereas up the coast into New England, like in Boston, uh, they would say no to Christmas. And they, like in England, they banned Christmas in the mid 1600s. So you get this real mix. And even a hundred years later, there's a guy, a Swedish explorer who uh, visited Philadelphia in 1749. And, and he said, yeah, you know, some places celebrate very differently. Some places um, have special Christmas foods, like Christmas uh, bread and Christmas porridge, and other places don't have that and open the shops and, um, and things like that. So he found it very confusing that places celebrated it very differently. And Chris, you mentioned, uh, as again, you mentioned this briefly, but what did you say? Why do you think Christmas faded away in 1728? Well, I think... Beginning, it faded away, yeah, I think uh, I think really what happened there is that um, there was with this gap that we had in England anyway, uh, with the Puritans in the 1640s, when it came back in this in 1660, it was they, they'd been campaigning for years, like bring back Christmas. But 15 years is quite a long time. And when it came back, it just wasn't as fun as it used to be. And I think there was a lot of promise. It just couldn't live up to the promise, really. It couldn't um, match up to this this expectation that people had had about bringing back Christmas of old you know good old Christmas and I think for years you know for centuries forever really Christmas has always been a very much looking back thing it's always about 
nostalgia and how things used to be. And even now, we look back now maybe to uh, the Victorian Christmas. So we look back to how our grandparents used to celebrate Christmas as opposed to anything much that new to do with Christmas. We, we like looking back. And I think then when Christmas was celebrated in the 1700s, they kind of felt the fun had gone out of it a little bit. And um, it was still celebrated. There were royal feasts and things like that. But I think the big party time was over. So what would you say saved Christmas that to make it very happy today? Well, I think a couple of things, really. Um, I think that in the late 1700s, you start to see a few little customs, like the Christmas tree starts to move around a little bit more. It used to be kind of just isolated in uh, in, in Germany and, and similar areas to there, but it started to spread a little bit more in the late 1700s. You also then had an American called Washington Irving, who uh, was a big traveler. He's the world's first big best-selling author, really. And he used to write these stories about places he visited, but he, he exaggerated a lot. So he would visit uh, England and where, where Christmas wasn't massively celebrated. And he thought that's a shame. So he wrote a story about this amazing Christmas that he had at this giant country house. And there were games and feasts and carriage rides and firesides. And, and he kind of made it up a bit, but he made up this classic English Christmas and he sold it to the Americans. He sold it even back to the English. Charles Dickens read that, was inspired, I think, eventually to write a Christmas carol, um, partly, I think, thanks to reading stories like that. So there are these ideas that, yeah, we need to um, tell people about how we could celebrate Christmas. And then, of course, with Dickens, you get family, charity, um, a sense of community and generosity. Redemption. Redemption. Yeah, all of these things, you know. And, and also, I think just quite crucially, because Dickens was such a good writer by labeling it bar humbug you know it's like if you don't like Christmas you're a bar humbug Scrooge if you do like Christmas then you're you know you're one of the good guys and right. I think that really helped actually sort of re reinvent Christmas. So what do you say that the modern I was have the Christmas that we have today fit into the exchange? I think really from then on you get um I think largely Victor, Queen Victoria and Prince Albert were very, because they were, you know, she's English, he's uh, German, and they had this real mix of cultures. They were very popular as well, not just in Britain, but across the world. They, uh, in America, they would print a picture in the American magazines of Victoria and Albert and all of their children around this new uh, Christmas tree, which was brand new, really. And Americans saw this and thought, oh, we need to get one of these. How do I get a Christmas tree? You know, I'd go and chop one down and bring it in the house. Brilliant. Until that point, that was not really, really done over there. So um, and, and also just mass marketing, the fact we could now print magazines for the first time and adverts and things like that. Then you start getting department stores and um, pane glass becomes cheaper. So department stores suddenly have windows where they didn't have windows before. And then you could look in those windows and think, oh, I'd like that for Christmas, please. And shop window displays suddenly have, um, you know, different uh, fun things people could come in and watch. Even if they couldn't afford to shop in the in the shop, they would look at the window displays and um, and see it filled with a beautiful Christmas scene. Right. So all of those inventions and industrialization, I think, really kickstarted the modern Christmas. And I think that's about it. We talked most of the stuff. Great. As far as I'm concerned, and of course I have to ask because it's Christmas. Hmm. What is your favorite Christmas movie? I, for me, it's got to be a Muppet Christmas Carol. I think because it's got you know it's the best 
version of a Christmas Carol, and it's got Muppets in it, so you can't really argue with that. A friend of mine, I don't know if you know him, Sam Rhodes, he interviewed uh, actually the guy who plays Kermit. He played oh. interviewed him, and I will send you the link afterwards. Oh, great! Yeah, lovely. It's a great oh, interview, wow. and it's uh, he's a really cool guy. But yeah, my, I think mine is. I think this is really an underrated movie. It's John Cusack, of course. It's called Serendipity. So it's one of my Christmas run traditions. It's oh yes. Film. That's a good and one. I watch it every, I watch it every year. Very nice. Yeah, it's a good one. But yeah, do you have anything pro, anything you want to promote? And in social media where people can find you where if they want to take get in touch? Uh sure, yeah. Well, I suppose there's the book, which is called Hark, the Biography of Christmas. And uh and I suppose something I mentioned a little bit of maybe earlier was um my other big interest at the minute is I'm doing a podcast about the history of 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 British broadcasting and of the BBC. Uh, so that's called the British Broadcasting Century. And it's a podcast that is reliving, re-exploring everything back in the 1920s of how we've got the uh, the BBC and how we've got broadcasting and radio and all of these things that we now have that's somehow ended up with you and I talking across a sea, you know, via, uh, via technology. So the way that, yeah, it's it, this world of communication is changing all the time and big changes this year of course yeah and uh on the social media if people want to find you yeah i'm i'm on twitter at paul carenza which is p-a-u-l-k-e-r-e-n-s-a uh, i'm on facebook and instagram if you search for the same thing and um yeah i'm out there i do stand-up comedy and writing and 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 lots of silly history things like this so yeah good fun Thank you so much for being on, and uh, I'm looking forward to, forward to publishing this podcast and sharing it with everyone. My Thank guest you. today Thank has been Paul Chirenza. This has been a Christmas Christmas special for you on, on this podcast. Next week, we will talk about the life of Abraham Lincoln. So stay tuned for now. Thank you very much. This has been World That Aged Well. They are also in, on Instagram at World That Aged Well. And make sure you can find us on Apple and podcast, Spotify. We are also on YouTube. So make sure to check us out. Thank you very much. Have a good week. Bye. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.